Here's a few quick notes about the show. Southern Girl Crime Stories is a podcast focused mostly on lesser-known true crime cases, consisting of cold cases, soft cases, identified Jane and John Doe's, along with missing persons and murder victims. You can follow the show on social media, on Instagram at Southern Girl Crime Stories, on Twitter at SG Crime Stories, or search Facebook for Southern Girl Crime Stories. If you're interested in getting some merch, visit my YouTube channel, or you can donate directly via Venmo or PayPal following the links in the description. You can submit case suggestions to southerngirlcrimestories at gmail.com or DM me on social media. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories along with photos of victims, suspects, locations of murders, and more. Zoe Gabrielle Campos was born on September 4, 1995, to parents Melinda Campos and Alejandro Campos. She was described as selfless, funny, very loving, and protective, with the sweetest and warmest personality you could imagine, and enjoyed spending time with her family, who she was very close to, especially her older sister Savannah and Savannah's children. At the age of 18, she lived in Lubbock, Texas, and was a student at Matthews Alternative High School and wanted to become a mechanic like many of her family members. On November 17, 2013, Zoe left home and went to her friend April's house, who had just had a baby. Several other friends were there, and while there, April introduced Zoe to 18-year-old Carlos Andrew Rodriguez. Zoe left April's home about 9 p.m. and was seen on surveillance video with her sister Savannah at Copper Caboose Restaurant near Avenue Q in Lubbock. After the sisters had dinner, the two returned to the apartment they shared at 3532 50th Street. Zoe and Savannah watched a movie, and by 11 p.m. they were getting sleepy. At the time, their father was overseas in Afghanistan, serving as a Marine, and their mother was at work, and the two were divorced. After turning the movie off, Rodriguez, who she had just met earlier, invited Zoe to his house at 1927 70th Street in Lubbock. She was supposed to pick her mom up at 2 a.m. from work, but she never arrived. The last text message from her phone was to her mother, saying she was on her way to pick her up. When her mother and the rest of her family and friends could not get in touch with Zoe, they became extremely concerned. The next day, her mother attempted to report her missing, but the police felt that Zoe would turn up. Meanwhile, the police contacted Zoe's cell phone company to try to get a location from her cell phone. They were told that they couldn't get a location because the phone was either turned off or the battery had been taken out. Finally, they got the last activity and area of her cell phone from the night she disappeared. The last text sent to her mother put her last known location near a football field called Lowry Field inside Plains Capitol Park near 66th Street and Avenue P. This was a very dangerous area and was known for drug activity and prostitutes. This information left Zoe's family very confused as to why Zoe would have been there. Then, three days after she disappeared, the police finally believed something was wrong when her 1997 Lincoln Town Car was spotted by Zoe's Aunt Monica with an unknown man driving it. 
Her aunt followed the car to the Driftwood Apartments, but the man ran off before she could catch him. After police recovered the car from the apartment complex, they found Zoe's black jacket inside and sent it off for testing. When the results came back, the DNA matched to Rodriguez. The lead detective continued to look through Zoe's private messages on Facebook and discovered that one person he had spoken to lied to him, Carlos Rodriguez. Rodriguez initially said that he and Zoe left and went their separate ways around 9 p.m. that night, but he left a major detail out. Rodriguez never told police that he had messaged Zoe on Facebook, asking her to come over in the early morning hours. Rodriguez's home was also in the area near the football field where Zoe's cell phone last pinged. He said he lied because he and Zoe planned to smoke weed and didn't want to get in trouble. He told Zoe to come over, but neither had any weed when she arrived. He claimed Zoe said she would get some weed, but she never returned. Rodriguez also left out information about messaging Zoe several times around 4 and 6 a.m. He asked her if she was coming back, but she never responded. However, detectives believed that Zoe never left Rodriguez's home that night, but they didn't have any proof. As a result, he was the number one person of interest. Exactly four years later, Rodriguez was arrested for stalking someone and sentenced to four years in prison. While there, in 2018, he strangely told investigators that although they had searched his land already, they were not going to find her body until they moved the concrete. Eight months later, they interviewed him again. This time, he confessed to the murder, saying he could no longer carry the burden of what he did. The police finally brought cadaver dogs to the home, and the dogs indicated the presence of a body. A week later, ground-penetrating radar was used to determine where the remains were buried. Rodriguez was brought to the property by authorities and pointed out where her remains were. Finally, five years after she went missing, her remains were discovered in the backyard of his previous home. Rodriguez was subsequently charged with her murder. He claimed that in the early morning of November 18th, Zoe drove him to his house where they smoked K2 synthetic marijuana. He admitted that he lost control, struck her in the face, and then strangled her. He drove her car to the Driftwood Apartments and left it where it was later found. He said he buried her body, but later moved it to another location in the yard. After he was charged with her murder, he wrote a long confession letter in 2019 and sent it to KCBD. He explained that as soon as he met Zoe, he became attracted to her. He said he invited her back to his home, where they smoked cigarillos laced with K2 synthetic marijuana. He said it caused him to hallucinate that Zoe was a demon, so he attacked and killed her. While this may be true, not everyone is buying his story of smoking synthetic marijuana and instead using it as an excuse for his horrific actions. Some speculate that Zoe rebuked his sexual advances and he retaliated. Either way, her beautiful life was taken too soon for absolutely no reason, leaving all her loved ones extremely devastated. In August of 2022, Rodriguez was sentenced to life in prison after the jury took only 14 minutes to determine his sentence. 
Hopefully, now that he is behind bars, Zoe can finally rest in peace. Patricia Louise Combs Smith was born in South Dakota on September 19, 1933. At the age of 50, she lived with her daughter and grandchildren in Lakewood, Colorado. On January 10, 1984, her lifeless body was found beaten to death. However, with no leads and no suspects, the case would go unsolved for the next 37 years. At the time of the murder, Patricia was one of the numerous similar attacks in the Denver metropolitan area. The local news would dub the unknown killer the Hammer Killer. Six days after Patricia's killing, on January 15, 1984, a family of four in Aurora, Colorado, was attacked with a claw hammer by a maniac who broke into their home. Seven-year-old Melissa Bennett and her parents, Bruce and Deborah Bennett, had all three been killed in the attack. The little girl's body was found nearly the exact same way that Patricia's body was found, and she had also been sexually assaulted. Thankfully, their three-year-old daughter, Vanessa, survived the attack but would suffer a shattered jaw and pelvis, among many horrific injuries. Sadly, she would later be taunted by kids at school about the Hammer Man, as they called him. She suffered decades of despair, drug abuse, PTSD, anxiety, bipolar, depression, and even problems with the law. She is now in her 40s, and although sober now, she still suffers tremendously. In 2018, with advancements in DNA, the bodily fluids and hair collected from the crime scene were finally matched to the coward that took their lives, serial killer Alex Ewing. 37 years later, in August of 2021, Ewing was found guilty of the triple homicide and the brutal attack on three-year-old Vanessa. Before he was sentenced, Ewing declined the chance to speak to the victim's family members who were present in the courtroom, including Vanessa Bennett, who was now 41. Ewing was then linked to the murder of Patricia with the same DNA profile. In total, Ewing attacked numerous innocent people during a 12-day span in early 1984. Some survived and some didn't. It turns out that Ewing had been arrested in Arizona 11 days after attacking the Bennett family. His reign of terror came to a halt when he was arrested for breaking into a man's home and attacking him. During transit, he escaped and fled to Henderson, Nevada, where he broke into another house and attacked a husband and wife. After being put behind bars, his DNA was collected. However, for unknown reasons, his DNA profile wasn't entered into CODIS until 2018, although CODIS was created in 1990. Once entered into CODIS, it matched the DNA from the Bennett slayings and Patricia slaying. He was already serving a 110-year sentence for the attack on the couple in 1984, and in April of 2022, he was given life in prison on top of that for the murder of Patricia. If he had not been convicted of her murder, he could have possibly been paroled after only 20 years, despite being convicted of slaying the Bennett family. Joette Marie Smith was born and raised in Omaha, Nebraska. 
At the age of 33, she was a very busy single woman living on Hillside Avenue in Ben Lomond, California. She was described as happy, hardworking, and a generous perfectionist. She also owned the Buffalo Gals across from her studio apartment and had for eight years. On the night of March 27, 1983, she and her roommate, Rachel Devereaux, spent time watching the Thornbirds TV show and eating popcorn. A little before midnight, she was seen making some phone calls as her roommate went to bed. A few hours later, at about 3 a.m., her roommate woke up and noticed Joette was gone, but that wasn't unusual for her, so Rachel wasn't initially concerned. Joette had walked to a local bar, but it was closed, so she then walked to Henfling's bar, but it was closing as well. So, she bought a pack of cigarettes and was going to go back home. A female server she knew offered her a ride home, but Joette declined and said she would walk around because it was nice out that night. Sadly, she never made it home alive. Two days later, a man walking his dog by the San Lorenzo River discovered her body. It was snagged in a tree floating in the river near the 200 block of North Woodland Avenue in Ben Lamond. It's believed she was attacked while walking over the bridge just 50 feet from her apartment. She had been sexually assaulted and her cause of death was strangulation. The clothing she wore was logged into evidence, which would help solve the case years later. Strangely, just a few weeks before her murder, she told a few close friends she believed she would die young. She even gave away her prized possessions and called numerous people she hadn't spoke to in a while to say hi. Sadly, the case would go unsolved for the next 40 years. About five years later, a sexually violent career criminal named Eric David Drummond became a person of interest. He had apparently asked Joette out on a date in the past, and she declined. It was discovered that as soon as Joette's body was found, he suddenly moved out of the state. They were now able to retrieve DNA found on her clothes and determined it belonged to an unknown male. They were then able to create a DNA profile from the DNA sample. Authorities were able to collect DNA from Drummond in August of 2022 and compare it to the DNA profile, and lo and behold, it was a match. However, Drummond would never face justice and would take his own life before he could ever be arrested, officially dying a coward. Hopefully, Joette's family can have some closure and she can finally rest in peace. Mabel Agnes Boyer Herman was born on May 8, 1900 and went by May. At the age of 73, May was a widow and lived in the 800 block of 6th Street Southwest in Wilmar, Minnesota. She was part of a sewing circle and a member of the Venhay Lutheran Church in Wilmar. On January 27, 1974, her sister became concerned when she wasn't answering any phone calls, so she went to her house and made a horrific discovery. Her sister was lifeless on the floor, and the phone had been ripped from the wall. She had been killed in what investigators described as an overkill stabbing attack. Algene Vossen was soon a suspect, known as a local peeping Tom, a bomb, and a thief. 
He had already served three different prison stints for various burglaries and attempted burglaries. He had also been caught window peeping numerous times, making obscene phone calls, and had been charged with fighting police officers and indecent exposure. Following May's murder, Boston was convicted of an extensive amount of crimes. He was stopped in February 1974, a few weeks after the murder, by the Wilmar Police Department for one of his many Peeping Tom incidents. When detectives interviewed him, he was questioned about May's murder, but claimed on the night of the murder, he was bar hopping. He said he had stopped at the American Legion and had dinner with his then-girlfriend and future wife, Lydia Olson. However, Lydia told officers a different story. She said that Vossen had come home at 9 p.m., already smelling of alcohol, and had dinner an hour and a half later than they usually did. She said they always had dinner at 7.30 p.m. and were always on time except for that night. Recent reports of a tan Chrysler registered to Vossen had been spotted on February 16, 1974, during an alleged window-peeping incident. He admitted to window-peeping numerous times after he had been released from prison, but denied murdering May. Also, they had no hard evidence to arrest him. Five years later, a detective traveled to Des Moines and interviewed him again. He was reported to appear nervous and wanted to know what evidence the police had and was very uncooperative. Fast forward 46 years, a cold case team came together and began reviewing the case. With advancements in DNA, evidence was reanalyzed and DNA was recovered from May's sweater. Thankfully, the initial investigating officers did a thorough job of collecting evidence, packaging it, and preserving it. During the review of the case, it was learned that the initial suspect, Algene Vossen, was now living in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. With the assistance of the South Dakota Division of Criminal Investigation, a search warrant was obtained for a DNA sample from Vossen. That DNA sample was sent to the crime lab for comparison, and lo and behold, it was a match. On July 23, 2020, the Wilmore Police Department arrested 80-year-old Boston in his hometown of Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and charged him with second-degree murder. However, a district attorney judge ruled him incompetent to stand trial and ordered screening for civil commitment. In his order, Judge Wenzel wrote that Boston displays significant short-term memory impairments along with additional impairments that would hinder his ability to consult with defense attorney or recall facts related to the case. Wenzel cited testimony from three evaluating physicians who suggested Vossen suffered from significant memory impairment specifically regarding newly learned information. Vossen was released from jail in October 2020 and spent 10 days in the hospital. He was then released into the care of his niece in Iowa, where he currently remains a free man. In 1970, at the age of 23, Betty Lee Jones was a mother of a young son and young daughter and had lived at 12th and York Street in Denver, Colorado. On March 8, 1970, Betty had been married for nine days to her new husband, Robert Ray Jones, but it wasn't a happy marriage, and their relationship was very tumultuous. 
They had been persistently arguing for several days when Robert suddenly drove away from their home in his car. Soon after Robert left, Betty flagged down a car in front of the couple's home and rode away. Witnesses saw her enter a random blue sedan going southbound on York Street with an unknown person. Betty never returned, leaving behind her husband and two children. The next day, her body was found by two Colorado Department of Transportation workers. She was found 40 miles from home, down the side of an embankment on Highway 128 near the Boulder County-Jefferson County line. She had been bound, sexually assaulted, strangled, and shot. Male DNA was collected, which was commendable considering it was 1970, way before DNA was used. Her killer was unknown, but her husband was quickly suspected of being involved, and Betty's family and investigators would hold on to that suspicion for several decades. But their suspicions were wrong. Robert had nothing to do with his wife's murder, and he would sadly pass away in the year 2000. 36 years after the murder, Boulder County Sheriff's Detective Steve Ainsworth reopened the case. He sent DNA recovered from her body to the state lab, and they determined it belonged to an unknown male. That DNA profile was used to eliminate numerous men that were initially persons of interest. Since her husband was deceased, they compared the DNA to that of his parents to officially eliminate him as her killer. Then, in 2019, the suspect's DNA was sent to Bode Technologies, and a genetic genealogy team began building a reverse family tree using the profile of the unknown male. They were able to narrow the suspect's DNA to the last name Martin. All offspring of the Martin family were identified and eliminated, except one daughter. That daughter was then identified and determined to have lived in Denver with her husband and two sons around the same time as Betty and Robert. At the time, her sons would have been in their 20s. It was determined that one of the sons had died in 1977, and the remaining son provided his DNA, which wasn't an exact match. Once interviewed, he told investigators about a third brother named Paul Leroy Martin that became estranged from the family in early 1970. He said that Paul drove a blue Plymouth Fury sedan around the time of the murder, the same kind of car that Betty was seen getting into. It turned out the last time his brother saw him was just a few weeks before Betty's murder. Paul died in June 2019 at the age of 76, so they exhumed his body, collected his DNA, and sent it to the state lab. Less than a year later, the Boulder County Sheriff's Office was notified that the DNA recovered from Betty's body matched Paul Martin. No connection could ever be made between Betty and the suspect, but if he were alive, he would have been charged and prosecuted for Betty's murder 50 years later. Her surviving son, Benji Hartgrave, was only four years old when his mother disappeared. He stated that he had only a few faint memories of his mother, and he and his sister were raised by their grandparents after their mother was killed. He said, like many others, that he had spent the last 50 years believing that his stepdad had murdered his mother.
Thanks for joining me today on Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, location of murders, and more. As always, your support is very much appreciated, and I look forward to seeing y'all next time.